You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 75, World Hope International, introducing Lisa Thompson. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, I'm so glad to be back with you today because we have a very special guest with us here in studio. I love it. I know, me too, who is a wonderful friend of the Global Center for Women and Justice and also a past guest on this show. And that is Lisa Thompson. She was originally with us for episode number 33 when we talked about terminology and language. And so it's a, that's a great show, by the way, to listen to if you yeah, haven't already heard it. Um, but we're here to reintroduce Lisa because she is now with us uh, in a new role in the fight against trafficking. And so we're going to have a chance to talk with her a little bit today, Sandy. So welcome. And Dave, why don't you just go ahead and introduce her? I would love to. Lisa Thompson joined World Hope International as the director of anti-trafficking in September, this past September 2013. And since uh, joining the World Hope International team, Lisa served before, I should say, prior to joining the team, Lisa served for more than 12 years as the liaison for the abolition of sexual trafficking for the Salvation Army USA National Headquarters, which is where I first met her, Mm -hmm. uh, Sandy. And in this role, Lisa developed and coordinated strategies for the Salvation Army to create recovery services for survivors of sexual trafficking. During this time, Lisa advocated for public policy issues and initiatives related to sexual trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation. And she's also chaired the Salvation Army's North American Anti-Trafficking Council and directed its initiative against sexual trafficking. And prior to being at the Salvation Army, she served as a policy representative for the National Association of Evangelicals Office for Governmental Affairs in Washington, D.C. from 1998 to 2001. And she was involved in uh, NAE's efforts seeking passage of legislation that's now known as the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which you have heard us talk about many times on this show as well. And uh, from 1996 to 98, she lived in China teaching English as a second language for the Educational Services Exchange with China. And uh, she taught both at the Shanghai Institute of Foreign Trade and Peking University, in addition to serving a year as the head central administrator of ESEC's Beijing office at Peking University. And she's done a bunch of other work too. Sandy, I'm really glad to have her here and welcome Lisa to the show. Well, we're really happy to have you here. And the reason why it's so important for Dave to tell us all of that long list, because I can watch your (laughs) eyes rolling, is because it's so important for people to understand the background that you bring to this issue in your new role at World Hope International. And there are so few 
people who have been doing this since before the TVPA was was uh, passed. And your experience is really valuable to me personally. You've been a mentor and to our listeners. So Lisa, thank you for coming. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you, Dave. It's really great to be here. It was a real surprise to be able to do the show today. So it's it's a pleasure to be with you. And the reason it's a surprise is uh, she's on her way back to from Cambodia. And so just stopping off and it's like, hey, let's jump in the car and go to Dave's house, um, to the studio, and let's record a podcast. So this is great. We're, we're in the moment. Yes, it's me being spontaneous, which is a really rare thing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> so World Hope International was founded by a wonderful friend of ours, Joanne Lyon. Mm-hmm. And I love her statement that's recorded from the um, founding in 1996, that her hope is to empower the poorest of the poor around the world so they can become agents of change within their communities. I love what that image means about empowering people, not just rescuing people. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny. I've known Joanne for years, and I've always admired her in the work of World Hope. And now to finally be able to be part of the institution that she founded, although she's no longer there uh, at the helm. Uh, her son, John Lyon, has taken over as CEO. But uh, Joanne has been one of the most influential women in my life. There's a handful of women who've really influenced me and been mentors and guides, like you were saying, Sandy, and uh, Joanne was definitely one of them. So it's really neat to now be at her organization and helping to carry on the legacy that she founded. Well, we're glad you're at World Hope, and we want to talk about what World Hope is doing globally to fight human trafficking. And there are three countries in your 2013 report, and we'll put a link to that report on the show notes so you can look at this yourself. And the the first one, we're going to go in alphabetical order, Azerbaijan, Cambodia, and Sierra Leone. So tell us what you're doing in Azerbaijan. Well, Azerbaijan is uh, it's one of, it's our smallest program, but and it's focused on raising awareness within communities, and we're targeting those uh, most vulnerable community in Azerbaijan. There's uh, there's been there's been a civil conflict and a lot of tension between Ar- uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, its neighbor, and as a result of the conflict, there are about six hundred thousand internally displaced people in Azerbaijan. So we work within those those marginalized populations there, um, giving them education, doing a lot of working to create community parent groups, uh, people who are informed about trafficking and who be, kind of become the eyes and ears and watchdogs for trafficking in their community. Um, in addition to that, we do a lot of education in schools and reaching out to uh, children who could be vulnerable to trafficking. So it's really a community awareness raising uh, so oriented ex- effort. Explain for us a little bit what um, an IDP, an inter- internally displaced person, is. It would almost be like a refugee, but within your own country. Uh, you know, something. So conflict has happened. Maybe your home got destroyed. Uh, something has displaced you from your where you were li- living previously, and you've had to uh, maybe seek shelter. And sometimes this happens in, like, in, say, in Africa, there'll be. Right now, with Syria for, is a good example. Uh, thousands and millions of people have fled Syria. They moved to neighboring countries, and they are basically living in camps um, that don't have electricity, don't have running water. 
uh, don't have normal resources because they've had to flee due to the tensions and the conflicts and the shelling and the bombing and all those types of things. So it'd be a similar uh, situation in Azerbaijan, although the conflict has simmered down now and it's not headline news right now. These, but they, they, there still are these eternally displaced persons there. And your um, your work there has identified that ninety five percent of the trafficking victims are women. Well, our work. I mean, we didn't determine that. That was okay. from research um, that we um, located on Azerbaijan. Yeah. Okay, so that's in the first country. The second country we're going to look at is Cambodia. And that's where you just came or on your way home from. Yes. Yeah, so I got off a plane around nine o'clock this morning uh, and Sandy was gracious enough to offer me a place to stay as I'm out here on business in California. So, uh, but yes, I've been spending the past several days in Cambodia visiting our assessment center program there and uh, was visiting with staff and having meetings with key partners and also just getting to spend a little time with our clients, which is a real joy to, to get to be with the, the young girls that we serve. So explain what an assessment center is and how it functions in a collaborative model for well, a community. The assessment center is really a one-of-a-kind of model that exists in the world. Um, and as far as I know, I don't know that there are any that are just like it anywhere um, what happened is about 2004, Joanne Lyon and some other people who were working to combat trafficking in Cambodia were trying to determine what the gaps were and what was, what was really needed. And at that time, it was the folks got together and thought, well, we really need a place where we can take girls right after there's been uh, a raid, some kind of investigation, and they've been rescued. Uh, someplace where we can take them for a short-term basis to get them stabilized, to find out more about their background, what the circumstances are surrounding their exploitation and surrounding their their family lives, and then uh, work with them to figure out what would be the best solution for them for a long-term care. Is it being reintegrated with to their family, or is it being referred to another NGO, another service provider for longer-term care? So basically, you can kind of think of the assessment center as the the emergency room mm. uh, provider for trafficking and CSEC victims who uh, and rape victims who are identified and referred to us in 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 Cambodia. So, how long would um, a victim stay at the assessment center? Generally, it's going to be about two months, and we right now we serve up to eighteen. Um, girls in the assessment center, and they range in age from five to 18, although occasionally we do take uh, clients that are a little older than that. We just actually just had three uh, uh, girls, young women who were over 18. So we, we are, we're flexible on that. It just depends on the circumstances. And sometimes we don't know their their status until after we've had time to do investigations, get paperwork uh referred to us from the authorities that can take time to determine who the girls are, how old they are, where they're from, you know, those kinds of things. But we work on all that and get that, build that package, get that information together, get the girls in a stable place so that when they're referred to, say, say it isn't appropriate to um, refer them back to family, if they're referred to a long-term service provider, then they don't have to, they don't have all the, quite the, the difficulty in getting them, transitioning them into a facility where there are other girls. Now, you can imagine if you have a highly traumatized girl who's come out of a brothel context and all, all kinds of emotional and psychological issues, and you drop her into a facility where 
there's girls who who who've been there who've been that uh who have been stabilized and you drop her in there she kind of serves as a a, a vacuum basically the the girls will just kind of drop down to her level of of status of stability mm-hmm. and it creates a lot of chaos um and intentions and difficulties in these long-term facilities when they take girls who haven't been stabilized so we're trying to take the edge off um do that acute care in the beginning so that when they're transferred to another service provider uh, that will go a lot more smoothly and it will work well for the other girls who are in care so that you're not re-traumatizing them as well. Okay. And and you, um, when you do this, you like it says in your report that you served 94 clients um, in 2013. And you've mentioned your staff. And, and while we were on our drive down here to the studio, um, we talked about your staff. Tell me how many people it takes to run um, an assessment center, and who are they? Mm-hmm. Well, we have uh, our program manager, and she's an amazing woman. Her name's Pia M. Uh, I think her name—it's a nickname that I think means grace or peace, or oh. it, and it's it's she's and she really is like that. Um, she started out as a lead team mother, a house mother. Um, basically, a house mother is someone who provides the parental oversight and care at the facility for the girls. Um, and we have teams of house mothers. Uh, so, um, and usually there's each team will have a, a head, like a leader who's the leader of the house mother team. So, Piup was a lead house mother and she's just worked her way up through the system. She's pursued education um, and now is getting her degree in management mm. and she's the director of the program and she's just a, a really great leader and it's a, it's a joy to work with her. So are all of the staff Cambodian? Yes. Yeah, so this is something that we're really excited about is that the staff who are running the facility, uh, who are providing the care, who are doing the social work and doing the counseling, they're, um, they're all ethnically Cambodian. Or, or not, I shouldn't say ethnically. I mean, they're all nationally Cambodian. We do have some ethnically Vietnamese who are on the staff. Okay. So I had had another conversation recently with one of the the issues when we send students uh, from Vanguard to mm-hmm. work in aftercare facilities is we lose the continuity because their semester's over and their internship is gone. Mm-hmm. And so there is a great value in having people that are going to be the same people. Yeah, so it's not that we never have had people, um, you know, from other parts of the world come in and volunteer or uh, carry out key responsibilities at the center, but the core staff are all are Cambodian nationals. And so it's exciting to be, because in doing that, we're really investing in helping pull up the level of um, professional care around in the social work field within Cambodia. Oh. We're creating a, a new professional class. Um, you know, the... Social systems in Cambodia really have, they've you know, with with the Khmer Rouge and basically the destruction of the country, and then all the kinds of civil conflict that existed in the years following the Khmer Rouge, the instability, the lack of resources, and so forth. There just really wasn't a social work as a profession, as a class of professionals in the country. So now that's beginning to emerge, and through what we're doing, we're investing. In that we're, you know, training Cambodians to be social workers, to provide counseling skills. And so really where the expats have come into this is in providing clinical supervision, because this still, the idea of counseling, the idea of social work, it's still not completely, people don't really understand the value of it and trying to move 
you know, counseling forward from a, you know, let's have a nice chat and, you know, talk, you know, talk nicely to actually making achievable goals and moving towards future objectives and helping people clarify their thinking about their lives. So we're having to invest a lot in training in mm-hmm. order to do that, but it's worth it. And it's exciting to see the change that has happened in our staff grow That's- professionally. So, um, so we, and, and another interesting development, one of the um, clinical supervisors we have now is actually Cambodian. And she's a young woman who's been to Baylor, wow. uh, part of their social work program, gotten a social work degree, and has gotten a seminary degree to boot. And so uh, having her come on board and provide some clinical oversight has been exciting because she has, you know, perspectives into why things are going the way they are culturally that that we wouldn't necessarily perceive as not being Cambodian. We wouldn't necessarily pick up on some of the signals and cl- cultural clues about what's happening, the dynamics of of counseling and social work. And so she's able to pinpoint some of these things and give us additional guidance and how to encourage our staff to do a, even a better job. Well, this is <clears throat> really important to understand what all goes into an assessment center. Yeah, so there's the the manager. We have the house mothers, teams of those. We have cooks. We have uh, the counselors and social workers. So that's the core team. We have drivers. Uh, we have to have drivers who can go pick help us go pick up girls when we're when they're identified and referred to us. And of course, we have security. So mm. all in all, staff is between nineteen twenty one. It, it can vary we're actually really probably needing to get a couple more people but uh, right now I think we're at 19. Right and who are some of your community partners that you collaborate with in Cambodia? I know some Mm -hmm. of the people. Well Cambodia is I think a really unique country in terms of the uh, the level of partnership that exists among the anti-trafficking NGOs Uh, and that is in large part due to the coalition Chab Dai Mm. Uh, joining hands coalition that was founded by Helen Sworn, who's a l- woman from uh, Great Britain. She and her husband have lived in Cambodia for years. And uh, she was one of the early uh, people active in anti-trafficking in Cambodia. And they and so as a result of her conversations with people and seeing what was happening, it was really, they felt like, well, we need something that will bring people together, that will really help them work so that we're not all stepping on each other's toes, uh, that we're not, it's, it was kind of for a while, it was a little bit like the wild west in Cambodia yeah. when it came to anti-trafficking, everybody was just coming in after the results of the, some of the high profile media stories that existed and got everybody's attention on focused on Cambodia. And so there was a bit of a rush, a gold rush, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to go to Cambodia and do anti-trafficking. And as a result, there were just groups duplicating efforts and groups kind of getting territorial and just not a lot of team spirit. So Chab Dai has been instrumental in helping to change that and bring people together to the table and really creating an anti-trafficking community that works mm. in partnership. And the other real exciting thing about Chab Dai is that they've helped elevate standards of practice because while a lot of people had really good intentions by going to Cambodia and, and developing anti-trafficking programs, they didn't always have um, a lot of you know, experience or knowledge about best practice and were just kind of going in and doing what they thought looked good to them. So because of Chab Dai and their efforts, they've been able to elevate the whole standard of practice in the field. And really to not be part of Chab Dai is to kind of really be out there on your own and uh, kind of outside the mainstream in practice in Cambodia. 
Good, good example of collaboration. Mm-hmm. Okay, I hope you guys have your globe out because now we're going to spin across over to Sierra Leone. And the work there is a really different kind of model. Tell us about what's happening in Sierra Leone. Well, we have two different things there. Um, one, um, well, since we've been talking about the assessment center, I'll start with the, the one that's most closely related to that. Uh, we have the first of its kind recovery center for trafficking victims and victims of sexual uh, abuse and assault in West Africa, in, in Freetown. And it's a reco- we call it a recovery center. It's a bit different than the assessment center in that it's women and girls can stay there for a longer period of time. The average length of stay would be about six months. And part of that is based on the fact that there's just Sierra Leone isn't as research rich uh, in terms of the NGO partners that are available to us to collaborate with to do these the short term stays and then mm. transition them on. We don't we just don't have that luxury in Sierra Leone. It's a much different landscape of providers. There are other groups doing work there, but just not enough and not enough not enough depth uh, for us to be able to do a lot of referrals to other groups. So um, we provide. The, you know, the same kind of standard of care, do a lot of the same work in terms of uh, family assessment, uh, trying to determine the dynamics in the family. Is this a safe family to return the girl to? Because uh, a lot of times the families aren't culpable. And we want to, we're really dedicated to making sure that if it's a safe family, that we help, you know, we equip them um, and, and help them uh, be able to welcome the girl back into the, her home. Uh, that's our core belief is that the best place for these children is with their families. So that's a bit, that's a a lot of work though, goes into uh, talking with the families, assessing them, and then looking at the community dynamics and will the community welcome them back and meeting with village chiefs and so on. So a lot of social work going on in these programs of, of, in the assessment process. Um, and then, you know, if sometimes it's not appropriate to reintegrate them, and then we have to work on equipping them with a livelihood skill. Um, and sometimes, we actually, we'd probably do that in either case, if, depending on the age of the client, making sure that they have some sustainable means of supporting themselves, because that's often what leads to these trafficking scenarios in mm. the first place. But, you know, the, the, the big push factor is the fact that they can't, uh, there's not enough food to go around mm-hmm. for them or their family. And then, of course, the pull factors of the demand and people, uh, always willing and ready to exploit people, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the work of the, of the recovery center. It's it's providing that long-term care, working with the client, having a client place plan, determining their mental health status, getting them medical care. Um, you know, and actually we've, we've had an exciting case. If, I mean, that might sound a little bizarre, but you know, when we get, when we, when we get a case, that means that someone who was exploited is actually getting help. Yeah. And that's exciting. I mean, I'm never, we're never excited that somebody has been exploited, but I am excited when those who have been caught up in something like this can finally come and get the care that they need. And we had a client recently who was um, expecting a child. Mm. And so we actually had a baby born not too oh. long ago. And um, it was really great. She had a complicated case. And so it was very good that she was with us and we were able to help facilitate the kind of medical care that she needed. And then uh, in a real testimony to the work of the assessment center, she named the baby after the former clinical supervisor. Oh, yeah. that's great. So that was really that was exciting. <laughs> so, uh, oh, Sandy, you were going to say oh, something? Well, um, 
What about, I, I saw in the report you have VPG meetings. That didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Okay. What are VPGs? Well, this is the other uh, program that we have in, in uh, Sierra Leone, which is our part of the TIP prevention, pro, uh, <laughs> prevention, protection, and prosecution program. But I like to just call it VPG, which stands for Village Partner, Parent, Village Parent Group. So the, the basically the model is the way you can think of it is as a community watch group. And what World Hope does is send uh, facilitators, trainers into villages, and we work with the village, with the village chief and the leaders to identify 10 community leaders that they vote for who will get receive anti-trafficking training. So they'll learn how to identify trafficking, what the indicators are, hallmarks, and so forth. And then they'll be plugged into a uh, referral network. Uh, which includes our staff as well as law enforcement within their community. And so they serve as eyes and ears uh, in their town, in their little village about what's going on. And in, in village life, there's a lot of people, you know, people are in your business. You know, they observe what's going on and you find stuff out. And so um, it's been great. So sometimes people will come to them and, you know, tell them, oh, well, did you know this happened? And so-and-so's it. And so now they know how do I, how they, they often saw these things happening in the past, but they just couldn't articulate what it was, you know, what was trafficking. They might have seen something that looked funny and looked exploitive, but they didn't have the words to describe it. And they didn't really know that it was necessarily wrong. Or but that because, someone would respond. Or that anybody would respond. But now they know. And they themselves are um, can respond. And it's exciting because what this is doing is giving rise to a new rebirth of civil society in Sierra Leone because the, the, the communities are becoming responsible. Um, you know, there's leadership developing within communities and they're taking ownership of different issues. And there's been a great spinoff in terms of not only is it impacting anti-trafficking, but it's imp- impacting other issues like female genital mutilation because we've had community... Um, parent group members who were actually part of the societies that practice FGM, but because of training, they're no longer uh, participating in FGM. And they're actually going on openly advocating for it not to happen to children, that children, not uh, girls, not be cut as part of the the initiation rights that are commonly practiced in parts of West Africa. I love that model because it's more than just trafficking focused it's really about building a healthy community yes yes and that's really gets to what you how you started the show with joanne's vision of community transformation and that's why i I get so excited about the village part the village parent group program okay so there is no way for us to go through everything in this 2013 report but i do have to make a comment and tell you how impressed i am with the photography Mm, thank you very careful and it's clearly um, intentional that you're careful not to um, re-exploit victims, very respectful of their privacy and their dignity. And it is worth it to go and download this report and see those examples, especially if you are thinking about um, working with an NGO and you want to learn how to tell your story in in a really um highly moral way. So you're not re-exploiting victims. You guys all know that's one of my pet peeves. So um, Lisa, our time is Mm -hmm. like just flying by, but we do need to know how to find out more about what you're doing, how to connect with you. Tell us about. Well, uh, probably the easiest way would be just to go to our website, which is www.worldhope.org. 
And that's where you can access the report that Sandy was mentioning. It's our 2013 report on our anti-trafficking efforts. So it's giving the big overview picture of of where we work and what we're doing in anti-trafficking. And then if anybody needs to reach out to me, uh, my email address is lisathompson at worldhope.net. So those are how you can reach, those are ways you can reach out to us. We are so grateful for you taking the time to join us today. I'm very excited about watching um, the future of World Hope International. And I want to tell people that next year at Ensure Justice 2015, Joanne Lyon will be our keynote speaker. Well, that should be terrific. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and we haven't even had Ensure Justice 2014. So Dave, tell us how, if you have not registered, we can register. Absolutely. You can register right now at insurejustice.com. <laughs> I was thinking, is it .org or is it .com? It's .com. Or of course, you can always go to the glow, glow. You can always go to the Global Center for Women and Justice page on the internet as well, which is a great way to find all the archives for this show too. And that's at gcwj.vanguard.edu. So that is a wonderful way to track us down. And I also am just I'm just enjoying listening to this conversation. And thank you, Lisa, for all your service and all the work that you're doing um, across the world and and the just the travel that you do and the efforts you put into helping end trafficking. I, and Sandy, it just reminds me of the, the, the so many of the conversations we've had of we all take a piece of this and it mm. helps to end this. And if we all have that piece that we can really make a great contribution. And that's such an, it's such an exciting thing to see that happening in so many different ways. And World Hope is a big part of that. Well, well thank you. It's been a joy to be with you. Thank you. We're for glad the you're here. Thank you. And if you have a comment, question, or even feedback about the episode, we would love to hear it. So the best way to do that is to go to gcwj.vanguard.edu. You can also send us email to gcwj at vanguard.edu. Again, that stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. And you can also reach us by phone here in the States, 714-966-6360. And thank you so much for those of you who have left reviews on iTunes. It helps more people to find the show and learn about anti-trafficking efforts. If you've been listening and use iTunes, leave us a review. We would uh, be very grateful. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Lisa. And see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Lisa. Bye. Good night.